Good morning, everybody. It's completely life-changing to believe that this is the Word of God and to have His Holy Spirit. So it's spirit and truth for us. And God's Word is so personal. And when Andrew handed me this this morning to read, I just looked down at the title, and it's Jesus' mother and brothers. I live with my mother and I have brothers. And God's Word is so personal to each one of us, and He wants to speak to each one of us. So Jesus' mother and brothers, Luke chapter 8, or 8, wherever you come from, (laughs) verse 19 to 21. Then His mother and His brothers came to Him, but they could not reach Him because of the crowd. And He was told, that Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the word of the Lord. God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Uh, my name's Thomas, um, and it's a pleasure to be teaching this morning. Um, I don't get to do this often in itself. I definitely don't get to start new series that often, so it's all downhill from here. <laughs> uphill. No, it's, yeah, it's uphill. Um, yet we, um, if you've spent any time with us, you'll know we just came out of a series in Ecclesiastes um, that challenged us to consider life um, looking at the end. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes points towards us, towards life, and all it may contain, and most of it being heavily meaningless. Life kind of sucks, is generally the gist of Ecclesiastes, but there's beauty to be found in it. There is um, wisdom. Um, so the, the question that that leaves us with is, well, how do we live? What are we meant to do? Um, so in a, in a few weeks' time, as we move towards um, God willing, planting our second congregation, um, we're also moving towards um, spending a season on the Sermon of the Mount as this practical, like how do we as followers of Jesus in 2018 in Belfast live this stuff out in light of the end? Um, so before that, um, we are spending a few weeks in our values. Um, we are looking at what makes village village. Um, these are aspects, our values are aspects of, of following Jesus um, that we as a church felt important to emphasize. And why that is the case is a lot to do with context. Um, when Village was planted um, four, five, six years ago, kind of fuzzy start, um, a lot of questions were asked as to who we want to be. Um, and whenever we're thinking of values, it's, it's not like we don't take them from anywhere else other than the Bible. Um, But there are many, many things that aren't necessarily our values that are still commands for Christians to follow around the world. But how we follow Jesus in Belfast in 2018 is different from how our brothers and sisters in, say, Cornerstone Rathfrey Island, a a close church of ours, how they work that out in a rural setting, which is different still from how brothers and sisters in Dublin, in City Church, work that out which is different still from how our brothers and sisters in Antalya, Turkey, work that out. You take any given teaching of Jesus. Um, say, uh, Jesus' teaching on, um, on forgiveness. How many times does Jesus say to forgive? Many sevens, lots of sevens. Seven, just seven times to the power of seven. Over and over again, right? You take that to our society, to anybody outside that's building, and generally, that's a palatable idea. People can get on board with, um, with tolerance, with with um, forgiving people over and over again, giving people a chance. To that same group of people, should you take Jesus' teaching on sexual ethic, um, you, might, you might get a different response, yeah? You take that teaching on sexual ethics to the Middle East, and that actually might be a lot more palatable than forgiving your, your brother, your sister, your enemy, seven times seven times seven times seven. Do, so do we see why context matters? How we work that out here is important. So obviously a part of working out our values is looking at what's going on around us. It's being skilled enough to read what our culture is saying is a good way to live, holding the Bible up to that and measuring it against that standard. Um, And and our values kind of come from that idea. And so um, they have, 
Um, I have no doubt that our values might evolve over time as our culture changes, as our congregations grow. Um, but th- these are values that we believe set us apart today, okay? We are a holy people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Being God's people means being a distinct people. Um, and our values, we believe, allow us to live as do all Jesus' commands, but our values, particularly in this culture, help us emphasize us being a distinct people. So does that make sense? Does everyone kind of get the gist of what our values are? So this morning, um, I'm, t- I'm taking on two. Um, firstly, everyone's favorite hashtag in this church, hashtag church as family. Respect. Um, and also going to be taking on spiritual honesty and authenticity. I'll go through the de- our kind of definitions in a moment. Um, but just from the outset, I want to kind of make... I'm going to be leaning quite heavily on the church's family stuff this morning. Um, we'll see that these two go hand in hand uh, pretty well, um, but it just feels like it's an important time to press into the church's family stuff. We'll see why. Hopefully that will make sense. Um, I'm not ignoring the other one, but showing how it fits in with the rest of them. It's important. Hopefully things will be revealed as we go on. Um, so... Uh, to set us up, in the same kind of way that John did last week, when we were talking about the presence of God, we took a hop, skip, and a jump through the Bible. Um, we are going to do that uh, today, looking at what it means to be the people of God, because it is from, from the beginning we see what it means to be the people of God right through to the end. So where are we going to start? Genesis, because it's a good place to start. So uh, keep your Bibles open. Keep all your phones, let's be honest. Uh, keep your apps open. We're going to flick um, quite a lot. Um, so flick to Genesis 1 for me. Um, we're going to start in verses, verse 25. Uh, we're starting here, by the way, um, starting with um, who God is. And that's important because in the words of John Calvin, uh, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. But we must treat the former in the first place and then descend to the latter. If we want to know who we are, we need to know who God is. So, Genesis 1, verse 25. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let me start that again. Let us make man in our image after our or our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. If you can tell from my emphasis at the start, God created mankind in his own image, but the words are let us, our, our (laughs) image, in our likeness. Scholars have been debating who God is talking to here for a long time heavenly beings, possibly, but the good news is um, he's probably talking to himself. Everybody can read a sigh of relief. Even God does it. You are, you're not weird if you talk to yourself. Page one of the Bible, we get a glimpse into the inner workings of God, a web of relationships that Jesus would then clarify, Father, Son, and Spirit. At the beginning, God exists in community, exists in relationship, Or in the words of another pastor, God is a family who builds family. It's out of the overflow of God's love and joy and affection shared within the Trinity that we have, before we were even around, that there is a decision to then create male and female in the likeness of God. We see in the beginning the God we look like an image exists in community, which suggests that we are made for community. God is relational, and so are you. You might not be social. (laughs) I'm looking at you introverts, um, but you're relational. Skip forward two chapters then to Genesis 3, or flick, or swipe, whatever. From verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And also, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the... No, Siri, don't. Now's not the time. I... Uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman give, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate Sin enters the world. This is not new information. You know this. But where does it hit first? At relationships. It strikes at the heart of family. Sin wreaks havoc in family. Now there's shame in the world. There's division. There's accusation. Family is now tainted. And it's not like it just stays here. It it continues on generation to generation. We know the next story. Cain and Abel, two brothers. You think your family's dysfunctional? Cain murders Abel. On and on the story goes. The next generation or the one after, uh, Lamech. There's this character called Lamech who takes more than one wife and goes on a killing spree. On and on, sin spirals out of control. And God's creation is at risk. Genesis 12, then skip forward another few chapters to Genesis 12 at the beginning. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it doesn't take long before we see the revealing of God's redemptive plan. He's going to fix it. Abraham's family would grow into a nation that we know now to be Israel. But what do we know about Israel is that they weren't very good at being God's people. Um, they too had sin in their midst over and over again, and they spiraled. Various leaders came and went we, King David came, and there was like relative peace for a while. Then that didn't go, he didn't go so well in the end. Um, Solomon, our old pal from Ecclesiastes, he built a temple and then um, kind of went crazy too. The prophets came and went, telling Israel to wise up. They didn't. Nothing changed radically until we get to Jesus of Nazareth. I told you this is a quick whistle-stop tour. Skip forward the whole way to the New Testament. <laughs> All right, Luke 8. We're looking at Luke 8, where we read from this morning. <laughs> then his mother and his brothers came to him. Uh, this is Jesus' mothers and brothers, uh, mother and brothers. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In, uh, in the book of Matthew, a different account to this, Jesus asked the question, who are my mother and brothers? You see, family in the Jewish worldview is not incidental. It's not just, uh, just people, random people. We just read Abraham's story, didn't we? we? We read what was promised to him, what was promised through family. And now Jesus is, is changing that. He's doing something significant. You see, the scriptures are like one big story of family that through this family would become, would become a blessing to the nations. Children after children would be blessing to the nations. We, if, if you don't believe me, open the book of Chronicles first or second and just look at the genealogies. Family was incredibly important. So if this is washing over us. It's because we're not from a Jewish point of view. And that's, I could probably say that that's 100% of people in here. We will come from the Gentiles, and we'll get, from, we'll get to that later. God is replacing this old order with something new. He's taking a community of people and saying, if you obey my, the word of the Father, you become, you become family. This is a staggering leap forward in the story of God. All of a sudden, those who were from a, a Jewish background who were in the family of God could now possibly not be in the family of God. And even more so, those who weren't from a Jewish background could now be in the family of God. 
to get an understanding of how big a deal this was, the New Testament spends so much time just trying to work this out, just trying to figure out what does it mean then to be the family of God, if, particularly if you're not from a Jewish point of view, but then also for those who did come from a Jewish worldview, just getting your head around this new idea of family as not being something ethnicity-based. For an example of that, let's skip forward to Galatians in chapter 3. From verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither, there's no male and female for all. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, Jesus isn't getting, getting rid of family. He's not, like, he's not just erasing that part. He's fulfilling it. He's now saying, actually, how you get into family has taken on a new way, and it's through me. There's so many metaphors for the people of God in the New Testament. A lady and her children, a people, a temple, a body, and a bride. But the dominant metaphor is family. The word Adelphos uh, means brothers and sisters, uh, or if you've got an old school King James Version, brethren. Um, It's used 340 times. That word in the New Testament, 340 times to describe the relationships of Christians to one another. There's no word that's used more to describe that relationship. Does that say something? Like, is that, I wonder if we should actually pay attention to that. The next, next used word below that is disciple, used about 100 times fewer. You know how many times the word Christian is used to describe followers of Jesus in the New Testament? Three. Three times. Jewish or Palestinian, British or Irish, nationalist, unionist, every race is now in the family if you're in Christ Jesus. Regardless of your political leanings, regardless of the family you grew up in, regardless of what side of the wall you were born on, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're in the family of God, church, that is good news. We need to grasp how good that news is. So working this out then, that's like, we're going to get into some more of the heart of this, but how we flesh this out in reality, we see our church's family, this, like Andrew rightly pointed to, as the gathering of the extended family. We see it fulfilled through what we call our missional communities. Groups of 10 to 30, roughly, male and female, old and young, married and single and widow, children, Everybody who is in Christ Jesus can be part of a missional community. Our missional communities do three things. We eat together regularly, where we, um, we have family discussions. We talk about our, this, what, we've, what we've been listening to, what we're trying to obey. Or we, sometimes we talk about books. Um, not just them, not like, you know, I don't know, The Great Gatsby. We're talking like books that are challenging us in our faith, dealing with maybe specific issues. My missional community... Gosh, two years ago now, went through a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that was very important for us at that time. Another aspect of our mission communities are core groups, which many of you are in. Um, it's, we realize it's hard to share the gritty details of everyday life uh, with a group of maybe 10 to 30 people, so we recommend that you get into groups of two to four women or two to four men, uh, and we practice the way of Jesus through confession, through outreach, through reading, and through encouragement. And our missional communities also have a thing called a missional focus, and we'll deal with that in coming weeks. But just briefly, we believe that while we're on mission every day in each of our lives, there's something special about when the church, church scattered as a family actually reached the lost. We'll touch more on that as we come in. So doing life in the, in, in the family of God and community is something that we encourage you to do all week long. Ideally, people you live near, um, you pray together, you eat together, you practice the way of Jesus, you push and pull each other towards your Savior. 
You look for ways to bless your neighborhood, your city. On Sundays, we gather with the other missional communities across the city and we worship as the extended family of God. We want all of you to experience this kind of family. And, so, and there are some of you who aren't in family. Some of you who know that stuff about being in the family of God in your head, but you haven't experienced it yet. You might come here a lot. You might quite like it. You like the vibe. You like the teaching or the worship. Uh, you like the flowers. We've got a strong flower game here. Um, you might give a little. You might serve a little. And, and no guilt and shame if that's you, but that's not enough. Do you think you're going to experience any kind of radical transformation in your life by just coming and partaking from a distance? And I could hear the introverts screaming, just give me a book, and that's enough. I'm telling you, self-sufficiency at its best is a weakness. At its worst is arrogance. You're not built to be alone. And so those of you then who are in family, who are in missional community, which I know is a good few of you, uh, I want to go through um, a, a, a list, maybe a generalization of your experience. This is what psychologists um, deal with in terms of new relationships. Can we get the first one up, Phil? I think the first one um, says infatuation. So first stage of life in a relationship is infatuation. This applies to all relationships, by the way. So typically you can think of it in terms of romance, but it also applies to life in community. So you get make a new friend, whatever, and they're incredible. They're awesome. Everything they do is brilliant, and you want to spend all your time with them. You're on the same page. But that quickly fades. The buzz dies off, and we get to the second stage, apathy. And you're a little bit more meh. Little bit. Mm. You don't make every single family dinner now. You start to find so-and-so's kids are a little bit annoying, particularly at dinner time because all kids are crazy at dinner time. Um, the, the buzz just fades. Stage three is frustration or fear. You begin to see people for who they really are. And let's face it, folks, the reality is most people are a letdown. You are. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Hang out with me, I guarantee you, I'll let you down. I'm human, my, my facade will drop. The image curation that looked so good on social media all of a sudden isn't there. They're not as funny in real life as they are on Twitter. People rub you the wrong way. You sin against your brothers and sisters. They sin against you. There's disagreements. There's personality clashes. Frustration sets in. Or there's the other aspect of fear, and you get to this spot, and perhaps because of issues in your family of origin, which many of you statistics show are damaged and broken, you start to freak out and panic. You might have also been burned in a previous church where you were previously close with people, and you get scared. The idea of having to open up and let people in terrifies you. It's really hard. Stage four, though, comes acceptance. You accept people for who they are and not for who you wish they were. You're accepted for who you are and not for who people wish you are. Stage five is re-engagement. You get into it and you have difficult conversations. You figure it out. You press through. My wife is a physiotherapist and as such is often found working on people's backs. Working, many of you might have experienced this. She can be quite painful when she's digging like an elbow in. Never any elbows, I'm representing your professional wrong. <laughs> she's gone, thank goodness. Um, yeah, I can say what I want. Um, often though, if you've ever given a massage or you've ever having, uh, you've ever had a knot in your back will come across these knots, don't we? Like these little balls of tissue that are all scrunched up that shouldn't be there. And part of the job is to work that out, right? Would Laura be doing her job if she just ignored that? No. That's just what came to mind when I was thinking about these difficult conversations. That actually, the way to health is to actually deal with the pain. It's to kind of press through, and it's painful, and it's sore, and you want it to stop. 
but then eventually comes health. It's the same thing if you're dealing with, let's take Lucas, for example. Lucas is having surgery. Is it a good thing that Lucas is having surgery to get that horrible thing out of his throat? I expect more nodding heads, people. Come on, nodding heads. Yes, it's a good thing. Is that going to be painful? Yes, of course it is. But it's good pain. It leads to long-term health. And that leads us to stage six, health. You push through those things in a proper way, and there's growth. There's maturity. There's joy and peace, not perfection, but there's life. So where are you on that list? Maybe uh, stage three, but right between three and four is where the biggest temptation to bail is found, to jump ship, find a new church, new friend, new community, new spouse. It's too hard. It's not worth, it's not worth the effort. Let me tell you, that is where Jesus does some of his best work. You want to become more Christ-like? Go through the pain. In community, we become more like Jesus. To become more like Jesus, you have to live in community. There is one exception, and his name is Tom Hanks, and he lives on an island with a volleyball. <laughs> That's it. The rest of us get community. To many of you, this might seem absolutely like a, like a foreign idea, and, and that's partly where, again, we come up with this, we, we, we talk about context again, is that so many of us, when this church was planted, so many of us had come from backgrounds where church wasn't a family, it was an institution, it was a building, it was an event, it was something that you, you turned up to, but then left. It was, a, it was a part of your life, it was just like a, like a compartment, it was compartmentalized, right? It was just a little box kept it the side, you opened it up whenever it suited. And if you didn't want to open up, that's fine, you didn't. But when you think about church as family, we don't get that luxury. There are times when you don't like your, your family of origin, am I right? You have arguments, you have fights, yes. Does that make you any less part of the family? No. Can you just like up and leave? Well, you can leave a room in a given situation. Does that like, does your name change? Are you, are you any less a part of the family? No, you just got some work to do. And if it seems like I'm being a little bit like nihilistic about the realities of family, I'm not. Jesus was like this. Jesus had a perfectly clear understanding of what family is like. When we get to the Sermon of the Mount, um, from like Matthew 5 to 7, when does it end? 7, 8? Around there. It starts in Matthew 5. 90% of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is dealing with relationships. And what kind of relationships? Like perfect, like perfect relationships where everything is just cushy? No. He's talking about, Jesus mentions anger and murder in the same sentence. He talks about like, being careful about what, how you, like, what you call people. Like calling people a fool is going to invoke the fire of hell. But these, Jesus talks about fool and fire of hell in the same breath. That's intense. He talks about when the family comes together for communion. It's like if, whenever you bring your sacrifice, when you come to communion, if you remember that something is off in a relationship in your family, leave your, leave your sacrifice and go to find your brother and fix it. Then come and take communion. Jesus isn't, is talking about hard and difficult and messy and chaotic and frustrating relationships. Welcome to church. We're glad you're here. Welcome to community, welcome to family. A brand new one, as dysfunctional as the one you came from. Jesus, the view of Jesus, of his, Jesus views his church as beautifully honest. That's not, that sentence doesn't make sense. Jesus' view of church is beautifully honest. So I'll quote this week from Walter Brueggemann. I think I have this one up on the screen. Churches should be the most honest place in town, not the happiest place in town. So if Jesus is honest about the church, then so should we, and that seamlessly links us into the other value that I'm talking about today. This is where we see our second value take hold. I think I have the definition towards the start. It's the second one with lots of words in it. Would you actually fire that up? Perfect. We want Village to be a place where it's okay to, know, to, to be honest about where we are at spiritually without any need to pretend. Doubt is best explored within the security of family life. 
We want to build an environment where we wrestle with difficult issues and see them resolved in the hope of the gospel. We want to offer a sense of belonging and be communities of grace in which people can be open and vulnerable. We will not let our welcome be dependent on adherence to any cultural norms not demanded by the gospel. Church's family doesn't really make sense unless you are like, committing to being open and honest in a mutual way. And speaking of context one more time, this is one of our values because, again, when this church is planted, our experience of what it meant to be a part of a church was, I, I like this phrase, and I think it encapsulates it well, is your Sunday best. And you can see why, again, that ties in with church's family. If you think of, of church as an event that you, that you consume, that you turn up to on a Sunday morning, and a Bible study that you consume on a Wednesday evening for your spiritual satisfaction, you're not going to be open and honest. These two go hand in hand. We are to be a people of openness and honesty. We're to be open about our struggles and our hurts. We call out the sinful and unwise decisions in each other's lives and are prepared for that to be called out in ourselves. We share our doubts. There's no more appropriate time for us to do that than now. Whenever there's so much suffering, it's right to ask God, where are you? And if that feels unbiblical, don't worry, it's in the Psalms over and over again. Some of the language of the writers of the Psalms goes like this. You rejected us and abused us. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You've made us a taunt, a byword, a laughingstock. Psalmists are often, typically David, are often found writing, wake up, Lord, you're not doing anything. You're not acting. Psalm 89 goes after the jugular. After reminding God of his promise to stick, after reminding God of his promise to stick by David and maintain an unbroken legacy of kings in Israel and that God would never, that God would never violate and promise, oh gosh, I'm all over the place. Uh, let me just jump straight to the, the words. The Israelites basically are in exile, okay? They're in Babylon. They've got no king. They've got no throne, no land. So the psalmist points out the obvious. You have renounced your covenant. You have defiled David's crown. You've defiled his crown. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Is God after that unfaithful? course not. Did the Israelites sometimes experience God as unfaithful and accuse God? Yes, clearly. They took their grief and anger though and they gave it to God. Did God strike them down with plagues, famine, or thunderbolts for presenting those doubts? No. We're to be a people of honesty to God but also to each other. I experienced this this year quite intensely. So um, as we get closer to October, I'll have been an elder here for four years. Um, seven years ago, my wife and I got married, and straight away um, we, we found village, and we, we set up home pretty quickly in it. Um, we invested. And so um, by the time this year rolled around, by the time 2018 rolled around, I was pretty tired. Uh, I started a new vocation as a PhD student, our second child came along, um, and now I was in this position of being one of the elders, but the only one who wasn't on staff. This is just my personal story, obviously. And so in a meeting in February, after realizing that I was tired, I shared it in a, in a meeting with these other three guys. And you know what was so funny? I, I was so nervous. I was like, shaky. And like, I could feel my voice. I was like, I knew, I knew straight away, as soon as I was going to talk about this, I was going to cry. I'm a sucker. <laughs> but after plucking up the courage and admitting that I was just struggling, no major kind of life issues, not dealing with any major sin issues in my life, thank God, not dealing with any like marital strife. We were just tired. I felt that. And so as I leaned in in a trust exercise, I was caught by a family who loves me. We shared the same story with our MC, and the response was beautiful. Meals started just turning up on our doorstep. Like, they were, well, they were given to us. That's just a metaphor. <laughs> our family cared for us. 
So my only encouragement is lean in. <laughs> the thing that I think of most when I think of this is Mean Girls. <laughs> the, the trust exercise scene, don't worry, people are going to catch you. <laughs> Churches should be the most honest place in town, not the happiest place in town. Uh, I'm going to jump to another quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. When they enter, they enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God. And finally, the despairing accuser of himself. We've all been guilty of idolizing this, but I, again, this is why we lean into this idea of being open and honest. And if you're prepared for that, it's going to be messy. So the call is this. To those who are not in a missional community here, let's, let's, let's fix that. Let's get in one. And to those of you who are in an MC, stay. Push through the pain. I'm going to touch on uh, some implications of how we practically work this out then. Number one, we share our stuff with one another. In John 1, 3, 14 to 17, that's the one I don't have on shortcut. John 1, 1 John chapter 3, from 14 to 17. We know that we have passed out of death into life, praise God, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for others, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John cannot conceive of brotherly love or love for God apart from the sharing of material resources. It just doesn't make sense. So that's the first implication. We share our stuff with one another. Read the book of Acts. That's one of the most beautiful passages. They shared their possessions until none, like none were in need. It's just oh, so hard to fathom. You talk about a distinct people in today's day and age where, where the message of our society is one of consumerism. You are what you own. How much you can accumulate it shows how much like, success you have. The, church, the Bible is... That's not, that doesn't come from the Bible. We share our stuff with one another. We share our hearts with one another as well. There's an emotional attachment, a sense of closeness and intimacy that the Holy Spirit weaves into the lives of sisters and brothers in Christ who spend time together, who share life together, and who are in ministry together. Um, a couple of quick verses for this. Philippians 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Or in Thessalonians, Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeared we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our joy and glory. You are glory and joy. Paul is 
so vocal about his love and affection for his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not this syrupy kind of like, like gross, just lovey, lovey stuff. It's an intense endearment. It's an understanding of who he is in Christ, who his brothers and sisters are in Christ. Another implication, we stay, we embrace the pain, and we grow up with one another. Uh, Laura and I had the joy of spending a night away in the Sleep Donut Hotel this week. It was lovely. And one, of the, one of our conclusions after this week was that we really like each other, which is a good thing to happen because it's not guaranteed. Um, we, love, we are to love one another even if we don't like one another. There's going to be times where that happens. And you have to remember that the love of Christ supersedes your liking of your brother and sister. It'll come back around. Don't worry. This is so countercultural, even within church circles. Research and statistics point to Western Christians, us evangelicals, who prefer a variety of church programs and experiences, who view religion as a commodity to consume, who think that spiritual enlightenment comes from diligence in a personal discovery process rather than commitment to faith community. Following, listen to this. Following Jesus has been diminished to a privatized faith rather than a lifelong apprenticeship undertaken in the community context of, under, undertaken in the context of Christian community. Let me say that again. I butchered it. Following Jesus has been diminished to a privatized faith rather than a lifelong apprenticeship undertaken in the context of Christian community. Do you remember two weeks ago, Lucas was preaching and he had a diagram? I should have got that off you. I didn't. It was like a, a, di- it was a, a spiritual formation paradigm and it showed us um, at the top of a triangle, um, unintentional spiritual formation is contributed to by stories we believe. Okay, and it's hard to identify those stories because they're all around us. They're in our TV shows. They're in our friends who maybe aren't, from a, uh, who aren't following Jesus. There's stories from all over the place, narratives we believe that we are convinced are the good life. Intentional spiritual formation, t- instead of stories we believe, it's teaching from the Bible. That's what forms our thinking. That's what forms what we believe in our head before we act. So when we let culture, when we let stories dictate what it means to follow Jesus, our view of God is warped. And instead of having this powerful creator God, we end up with what some people have called moralistic, therapeutic deism. So we believe in God, we try to be good people, but at the end of the day, God's just there to make me feel good. A divine therapist who aids your spiritual quest so that when trouble hits, you're more prone to taking your personal Jesus from church to church, from marriage to marriage, somehow hoping you find a better solution. Church this blatantly betrays the New Testament understanding of church as surrogate family. In Matthew 18, Jesus, I don't understand how you can read this and not, if you're not thinking of church as family, I just don't know how this applies. Jesus talked about confronting people who sin against you. And all of you who get scared about confrontation are just like wincing the idea of confronting someone who's wronged you. (coughs) But guys, the the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Do you hear that? The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. So because of that, you're going to be asked hard questions. Because your individual autonomy is going to take a back seat if you're committed to church's family. So don't be, don't be surprised if you lean, lean into church's family, if you commit to spiritual honesty and authenticity, that you get asked difficult questions about decisions you're making. Typically about vocation, about spouse, and about residence. But think about it. If you are church's family who knows you, who has prayed with you, who has lived in and out of your life, who is better to speak into those things? Who is better to to call out the gifts and talents in your life whenever you're making decisions about your future as in job in the vocation world? 
In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul has to address sexual immorality. That doesn't really make sense in a church not as family. And I can imagine this would be like incredibly offensive to those in our society, that people are getting in each other's business about private stuff between consenting adults. It's like, that's a big no-no for our culture, isn't it? What happens with church and moralistic therapeutic deism is that it's, you don't talk about my sex life, you just talk about my spiritual life. You don't talk about my financial life, about where my money's going, or what I'm spending it on. In Galatians 5, uh, Paul refers to um, some, he's teaching, he's pointing out what to do with false teaching. Um, And he talks about a little yeast. And a little yeast in a batch of bread affects the whole loaf. So there's an understanding that people had responsibility to one another so that when one was going off track, they weren't allowed to go too far. People don't get to think of themselves independently anymore. You're part of this thing together. When one of you sins, it affects the whole body. Somehow, that when one of you lives righteously, it affects the whole body. We need to understand ourselves not just as individuals, but in light of the whole members of a body. What we say about um, church's family is this. I think it's one of the first or second slides, Phil, sorry. Um, Spiritual formation is how it starts off with that word. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God, to their fellow human beings. This isn't on the slide, sorry, Phil. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. The final implication. Family is more about me, my wife, and my kids. The idea of the nuclear family is relatively new, of husband, wife, 2.4 children. And sometimes I worry that the Christian dream in Northern Ireland is to get the spouse, is to get the job, is to get the kids and the nice house and coast. And while family, while that, that unit of family is no bad thing, it's important. Paul says someone who doesn't care for their family, doesn't provide for their family, is worse than a heretic. But it's not the end goal. It's a means to make us more Christ-like. A biblical vision for the, for the household isn't necessarily just husband, wife, kids. We need to broaden our perspective and consider the idea that the household is a place of brothers and sisters in Christ of spiritual mothers and fathers. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family, we, the family is in rare circumstances the most powerful system that will share, shape and influence who we are. Church's family is a tremendous gift to the world. So to close... God has designed family as a redemptive vehicle for him to showcase his glory. And for you to commit to it, I can't, conv- I can't do anything about it. I'm just pre- presenting you with a case. I'm presenting you with a good way to live, a better way to live. The, the call is for you to commit to it, but that has to be something that you decide. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the New Testament. It's just Im- unbiblical. Paul's writings don't make sense outside of community. You're made in the image of a relational God. And when we, in Christ Jesus, operate as family, we are reflecting that very image. We are reflecting the Trinity. So then we come to communion. And how do we think of that in a family context? Well, it begins, of course, with God. 
a God who instigated a great redemptive mission in the world through family, first through Abraham and Israel, but now through Christ Jesus. A verse that you can't get sick of. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father sent God the Son to earth. Talk about family language. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose and he ascended. And we, not being heirs of Abraham through ethnicity, are now included in this story. The gates to the family of God are blown wide open and Jesus says, anyone who is in me is now in the family of God. So that you in Christ Jesus, whenever God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see imperfect, unclean. He doesn't see us. We were once the enemy of God. We were once dead in our sins, but God doesn't see that anymore in Christ Jesus. Christ as our brother who conquered death vouches for us so much so that he gives us his name. Have you ever thought about the word Christian in a family context? Christian, not just as a label that we give ourselves, but as a label that your brother Jesus bestowed on you so that it's not by your name that you get admitted to the kingdom of heaven, it's by his name. It's the name of Christ Jesus. Imagine you reclaim that word Christian as a family name. Not just as a label you're a little bit of ashamed of, but as a name of great power. Because when Jesus stands there and looks, stands beside us, when God the Father is looking at us and says, This is my brother. And God says, Yeah, that's good. That's the vertical perspective. Horizontally, then, when we bring our eyes down, we look across the person beside you who have the same relationship in Christ Jesus, that is what makes you brothers and sisters. It's that name that makes you brothers and sisters. And so today we gather as that, as brothers and sisters to glorify God. We come to the table remembering how we got that name in the first place. We are being built into a beautiful temple, a body fit for the work of God's redemptive plan, a family. Would you stand with me as we pray and we come to communion? Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for, your, for the fact that you sent your son as his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We're so grateful to have your name, Jesus, written on our lives. Lord, would you empower us to live as family? Empower us Give us the grace that you have shown us that we might show one another's. May we be open and honest. So when we tear the bread, we remember this, Christ's sacrifice. You're in his family because of his sacrifice. His body nailed to a tree and left to hang until he was dead. His blood poured out. It's by his death that you live. By his resurrection, you live.